0: It's Thursday, January 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's official. Democrats have taken control of the Senate. Both Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff won their Senate runoff races in Georgia, splitting the chamber 50-50, giving Vice President-elect Kamala Harris the tie-breaking vote. For Warnock, he has achieved many historic firsts, including the first black Democrat senator from Georgia. Maya King, politics reporter at Politico, joins us for How Warnock Won. Next, with a new strain of coronavirus spreading throughout the UK and a very strict lockdown, Britain has taken a different approach to vaccinating its people. Instead of following the two-shot protocol of the Pfizer vaccine taken about three weeks apart, officials have said they will try to give more people their first dose of the shot and delay the second shot by as much as three months. Helen Branswell, senior writer at Stat News, joins us for this modified rollout. Finally, the death toll from the coronavirus in the U.S. continues to rise, but sometimes it's hard to register the magnitude of losses. Some perspective is often needed to understand what has been lost. For instance, on average, each person in the U.S. who has died from COVID-19 has lost about 13 years of their lives. Joe Pinsker, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for some numbers that make the impact of the pandemic sink in. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in.
1: I'm just deeply grateful to be uh, a vessel uh, in a moment in which we're facing such large problems in our country. And I can't wait to get to the U.S. Senate to represent the concerns of ordinary people.
0: Joining us now is Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Maya. Thanks for having me. We had on Tuesday a historic victory for Reverend Raphael Warnock in his Senate battle over Senator Kelly Loeffler. He gets a lot of historic firsts to his name in winning here. Obviously, Democrats were hoping for this win and also for a win for John Ossoff over Senator David Perdue. It looks like that could be likely. And that has massive implications for the Senate over the next four years. But Maya, let's focus on Raphael Warnock for a little bit. He has a very interesting story and really had to kind of walk a fine line and use what we see as the old South and the new South there to win his Georgia Senate seat. What are we seeing there?
1: When we think about Southern politics, it's very easy to associate it with older antiquated policies, perhaps a lack of diversity and representation, and even just a general slower pace in the way that politicians pass laws, the policies that they prioritize, and the people and communities that they're thinking about and these policies that they pass and that they draft. But Raphael Warnock, as a senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, as a fat-packed chair of the New Georgia Project, and as a first-time politician, seems to combine a number of different worlds, the Old South of the Black church and of the Black prophetic tradition, and the New South of targeting Black voters and rural voters, young voters, first-time voters, and including as many people as possible in the democratic process, and making sure that they not only are registered to vote, but that they turn out, they mobilize on behalf of Democrats and that they have a role in the political process and in the policy debates that are set to take place. And so the folks that I've talked to about Raphael Warnock and the campaign, of course, talking to them, they've made it very clear that they believe that this candidate, now senator-elect, Raphael Warnock, is, again, a combination of all of these worlds and that he'll bring That knowledge of both the old South and the new South, he will apply it in his own governing strategies now as senator this year.
0: Yeah, he's going to be the first black Democrat from Georgia, the first black Democrat from the South. Really an impressive win there. And he had to fight back a lot of attacks from his opponent, Kelly Loeffler, attempts to basically, you know, make him look like he was a socialist. Just really a lot of attacks on his character and the way he would be operating there in the Senate. And really none of that worked.
1: No. Raphael Warnock was indeed the most attacked candidate of all four candidates in Georgia's Senate race. Republicans made a lot of efforts, invested a lot of money into portraying him as a radical, as a Marxist, as a generally dangerous figure. And those attacks in the end really didn't take hold, in large part because a lot of their attacks on Warnock also vilified the Black church. And Black religious, Black faith traditions, and overwhelming number of Black voters in Georgia are Christians and are religious or practice some kind of faith. They were extremely offended by these attacks and were very vocal about how much they disliked them, not just for the way that Republicans went after their candidate of choice in Warnock, but also in how they attacked their faith and how they attacked their religious tradition that not only encouraged them to turn out in large numbers, but again, it gave them a message to get behind in saying that this is not just a political campaign, in the words of one representative or the NAACP president in Georgia who I spoke to, but it's also a moral issue, is what he explained to me.
0: Yeah, and it was that overwhelming support from Black voters that really Want him the seat on this one. We're expected to see John Ossoff win over Republican Senator David Perdue. This would give the Senate an even 50-50 split with Democratic senators and Republican senators, which will be an interesting thing because that sets up Vice President-elect Kamala Harris to be the tie-breaking vote in any of the situations that merit it. So the Democrats are really coming into this With a very strong hand, Joe Biden, president elect, has an opportunity here to really push through things that are on his agenda and maybe get some action done in Congress, which we haven't seen in a long time.
1: Well, this certainly gives him an opportunity to pass the most ambitious policies that he and his team have been thinking about. And we don't quite know the specifics of those, but we do know they'll likely be along the lines of, of course, COVID relief for communities and communities of color, criminal justice reform and policing reform, and overhaul, perhaps, of the ways that we think about healthcare or national security. I mean, these are all things, of course, against the backdrop now of really what we're seeing, an insurrection on Capitol Hill. I think this puts into perspective just how important some overhauls of policies and the ways that we think about government systems in this country will have to be addressed. And it will ultimately be a huge responsibility of the Biden-Harris administration to address these topics. And they'll certainly need the help of the Senate and the House, which they now, it seems, will have control over.
0: Maya King, politics reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: The U.K. was the first country in the world to pre-order supplies of this Pfizer vaccine, securing 40 million doses. Joining us now is Helen Branswell, senior writer at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Helen. Hi, thanks for having me. We're all looking at the rollout of the vaccines right now. In the United States, it's going a little slower than expected. Uh, It's been pretty uneven right now. But in the U.K., something interesting is happening. They're actually going to be taking kind of a gamble, I guess, with the way they're setting out the doses. Right now they have the Pfizer vaccine approved there, the AstraZeneca vaccine approved there. And, you know, it's a two-shot protocol. So you take the first shot, I think uh, three, four weeks later, you take the next one. But what they're trying to do is maybe extend where that second dose gets administered and maybe try to administer the first dose to as many people as possible. And there's all sorts of questions that arise from this. So Helen, uh, help us walk through some of what's going on there.
2: Right. So it is exactly as you have described. The Pfizer vaccine is given uh, three weeks apart, the two doses, and the Moderna vaccine is given four weeks apart. The AstraZeneca vaccine, which is also being used in the UK, but not yet in the US, the timeline on that is a little bit different. They have some data suggesting that if you actually space out the two doses longer, that you get a better response. So what the UK is trying to do is deal with a huge problem, obviously. Everybody's got a problem, but as your listeners will know, there's a new strain or variant of the virus that has emerged in the United Kingdom that appears to be substantially more transmissible, about 50% more transmissible. And they're seeing their cases skyrocket. And in an attempt to try to get on top of that, they decided to try to get as many people as possible, a first dose as quickly as possible, and worry about delivering the second dose at a later interval, somewhere like three months or something like that.
0: And to add to that confusion, too, they said, well, maybe if the, uh, you know, because you take uh, two shots of the Pfizer vaccine or two shots of the AstraZeneca vaccine, if that dose is not available, maybe you can switch to the other one which hasn't been tested, really. So that was another wrinkle in this whole thing where, you know, a lot of people that were objecting to this are saying, well, you're making the country a living laboratory, really. And some of the other criticism that popped up was uh, you could be fostering, you know, maybe some vaccine-resistant forms of the virus. As you mentioned, they're battling a different strain already. And if people are only getting half doses, will the virus be able to adapt and mutate to be more resistant to that? So those are some of the other big questions popping up.
2: As I said, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which they're using, they do have some data. But on the issue of elongating the interval between doses for the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, which they've just approved, those data don't exist. In theory, people think that it might not be a problem. And in fact, it's known in vaccinology, that if you can go a longer period of time between doses, you, you probably get a more durable, a more long-lasting response later on. But no one's clear with these new vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna ones, how long or how how long the protection between the doses lasts, or how strong the protection engendered by the first dose is. And so the concern is, as you say, that you're going to partially protect people, but that might not be enough to keep them from becoming infected. And if they become infected, there's a possibility that they could effectively give rise to new strains of the virus that are more adept at sidestepping the antibodies that the vaccine
1: creates.
0: Now, in the United States, the FDA has kind of warned against this. They said that they are not going to go With this type of protocol, they're going to follow the rules that were already developed and what they saw in the clinical trials. Uh, Has there been any response from the manufacturers, from Pfizer or even AstraZeneca, on this plan by Britain to go about this way?
2: I'm not sure about AstraZeneca. I do know that Pfizer has said that their vaccine should be used the way it was tested. And, you know, yes, the FDA has said in this country that it will not be modifying the schedules. Really, at this point in the United States, the issue isn't, trying to get first doses into more people. It's trying to get the vaccine that exists into arms in the first place. The distribution system isn't working that well yet. I mean, that's kind of to be expected. It's early days. But I think people are thinking, like, let's not bite off that before we even are able to administer all the first doses that we have.
0: Helen Branswell, senior writer at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks again for having me.
0: We are on track to have 100 to 150,000 Americans die of this virus uh, before March 1st, before the end of February. Uh, that is an awful toll. And I think vaccines are among our most effective ways out. Joining us now is Joe Pinsker, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Joe.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I wanted to talk about coronavirus and the numbers, the death numbers that we're seeing. A lot of times it's really hard to put a lot of this stuff in perspective Right now, we're seeing over 350,000 deaths in the country. We just got some stats out of Los Angeles, where I'm out of. One in five people in L.A. County getting tested, are testing positive. But it's really hard to kind of figure out what all of these numbers mean. And Joe, for The Atlantic, you wrote an article about four numbers that kind of make this death toll really sink in. It's just basically looking at these numbers in a different way. One of the first ones that was really interesting had to do with how people were deprived of the rest of their lives. Basically, on average, each person in the U.S. who's died from COVID-19 was deprived of about 13 years of their life. Tell us a little bit more about this.
3: Yeah, my goal in this article was to try to get at how, as you were saying, 350,000 is such an enormous number. And this 13 years of life statistic that you just mentioned is, to me, one of the most powerful ways of trying to conceptualize what we've lost in the past year. The 13-year average is basically comparing how much earlier people who died from COVID-19 died compared to when they would have been expected to live. And so what's interesting about an average like this is that it captures a ton of variation, right? There are people who died closer to when they would have died otherwise in the absence of the pandemic, but there are also people who died well, well, well before. And so the 13 years mushes all those people together but there are actually a ton of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s who have died from this disease and lost a ton of their life.
0: Obviously, the coronavirus is all over the place, but not everyone has been touched by it in the same way. And we know that older people, people with comorbidities are more susceptible to this. And you mentioned in the article the feeling that a lot of people have. Well, you know, they, they were almost going to die anyways. You know, they were on their way out anyways. But this is many years. You know, if you're 70 or 75, whatever it is, you still had a good 10 to 15 years, something like that. That's a lot of time that people are losing out on if they get the most severe cases of coronavirus.
3: Yeah, it really is. And this is kind of one of the things that I think is a bit misleading about thinking about the life expectancy at birth of somebody born in the US. We say, oh, a typical lifespan is about 78 or 80 years or something. But really, when you start looking at people who've already reached older age, they are much, much likelier statistically to live a lot longer. So somebody who dies at age 70, as you said, may still have 10 to 15 years of life. And this statistic is kind of a way of capturing that.
0: You mentioned life expectancy. That's one of the other ways to kind of look at this. It seems that it has almost dropped by a full year. Now, this is something that will probably rebound because we won't always be in a pandemic, hopefully, let's say. But that's one of the other ways to look at this is that life expectancy has dropped.
3: Yeah, it's a bit less intuitive than the 13-year statistic that we were talking about. But basically, if you look at where life expectancy was in 2019, and then you compare it to what researchers expect it to be in 2020, the drop-off is a full year, which just saying the number one doesn't actually sound enormous, but really what this is doing is kind of aggregating and capturing how survival rates have dropped population-wide. So there are so many people in the U.S. that a drop of one actually is significant. The last time life expectancy dropped a full year or more just from one year to another was 75 years ago. So this is another way of capturing how hugely historic this is in terms of how the pandemic has reduced survival rates.
0: Demographics is a big one that we always hear about. And we hear that people of color are disproportionately affected by the coronavirus here's another way to see it then. One in 800 black Americans has died from COVID-19, while one in 1,325 white Americans have. And this is a weird statistic too, because it should kind of be the other way around when you consider how much older white Americans are in this country.
3: I think there are kind of two interesting observations to make about this statistic, and it's why I included it in my article. One of those observations is just that We hear a lot about how much more likely people of color are to die of COVID-19, but this particular way of phrasing it, 1 in 800 Black Americans versus 1 in 1,325 White Americans, really, I think, kind of brings it down to a more personal level. You can almost picture 800 people. So I think that's a powerful way of looking at something that gets often stated in, in somewhat dry statistical terms. The other point you made is a subtler one, but just as important Basically, we do know that COVID-19 is more likely to kill people who are older, but we also know that a larger percentage of white Americans are older compared to people in other racial groups. And if we were just looking at that fact alone, we would expect that more white Americans would be dying from the disease than those in other racial groups because there are so many more older white people. However, the opposite is the case. And you have people of color dying at much higher rates, which really underlines how, even though age would predict one thing, all these other things, comorbidities and underinvestment in healthcare among communities of color, have ended up shaping outcomes for them.
0: Roughly 3.1 million Americans have lost a close relative to COVID 19. And that really puts it in perspective when somebody you know, a family member, passes from this it really hits more. you know. That's why we see a lot of these human interest stories talking about themes like this. But that's a very interesting number there.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we look at a number like 350,000 as the current cumulative death toll. And that number, while enormous, also really, really pales in comparison to the population of the US. It's so much smaller. But looking at, as you said, the number of people who are mourning a close relative To COVID-19, that's a much larger number. It's about nine times 350,000, which yields, as you said, 3.1 million. That number is only going to keep going up.
0: Joe Pinsker, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.